And I think you find at Sugarbush a higher quality skier that's looking for adventure. They get bored just, you know, skiing groomers. You know, some mountains groom everything. Our philosophy is to really have a mix. We may be grooming up to 60 of our 111 trails, but we're leaving 51 trails ungroomed. Welcome to the storm. I am your host, Stuart Winchester. The Storm Skiing Podcast explores the business, history, and culture of Northeast skiing. Subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at skiing.substack.com to get all Storm Skiing Podcasts and content as soon as they're live. You can download the Storm Skiing Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Pocket Casts. Follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. Episode 11, Wynn Smith, President and Chief Operating Officer of Sugarbush. Quick. Who's the general manager at Local Bump? What about Stowe? Or Whiteface? Or Wildcat? Even if you know these mountains and know them well, you may not necessarily know who runs them, and that's pretty normal. But I'll bet you know who runs Sugarbush. For the past 18 plus years, Wynn Smith has not only rebuilt Sugarbush, he's rebuilt the community around it. He skis the mountain almost every day from November to May. He's out in the community. He sends weekly newsletters. He does media. He gives out his email address. He is one of the most accessible leaders of any large mountain anywhere. As a result, Wynn has become associated with Sugarbush in a way that's rare for an individual to be associated with a mountain these days. The era of the great founder-owner has largely passed us by. Pete Siebert, who founded Vail, or Dick Bass, and Ted Johnson at Snowbird. Here in the East, you think of Preston Smith at Killington. These people were inseparable from their mountains. While Sugarbush was founded in 1958 and Wynn didn't come along as owner until 2001, he has become synonymous with the place in line with these legendary owners of the past. As you know, Wynn is owner no more. In November, he announced that he was selling the mountain to Altera, but he is still in charge and he will be for some time. I wanted to talk to Wynn about all of this, see where his head was at with the Altera sale, chat about the future, get some intel on the Icon Pass, and a whole lot more. Let's do it. My guest today is the President and Chief Operating Officer of Sugarbush Resort. Sugarbush is one of the largest ski areas in New England, with 111 trails and 28 marked glades spread across two mountains on a 2,600-foot vertical drop. He owned and operated Sugarbush from 2001 until January 2020, when Altera Mountain Company completed its purchase of the mountain. He's also on the board of the Vermont Ski Areas Association and is the chair of the National Ski Areas Association. Wynn Smith is my guest. Wynn, thank you so much for joining us. I am pleased to be with you today, Stuart. So as of January 14th, you handed the keys to Sugarbush over to Altera. How are you feeling about that? Actually, you know, very good. You know, we started talking to them last summer. We've been working on that deal since then. You know, I've known the folks for a number of years in the ski industry. We worked with Altera, you know, as a partner the last year. So we really got to know them. And, you know, in my mind, uh, they are the right next custodian, so... A very smooth transition, and I think we're all feeling very comfortable. You know, over the years, you've become synonymous with Sugarbush in a way that you don't really see people become synonymous with mountains anymore. It's almost like when Bessie Pratt ran your neighbor, Mad River Glen, or uh, Preston Smith was running Killington. As a result, you've built this really strong community around the mountain. How has that community reacted to this decision? You know, I think very well, Stuart. Uh, nobody likes change. But I think everybody understands that the reasons why I decided to sell and the reasons why I decided to sell to Altera 
You know, I'm also not running away. You know, I'm staying here to make a smooth transition. And more importantly than me is I've got a great team here. They're staying in place. They're going to be here for years to come. And you mentioned the word community. We are a community, and this community is very sustainable and, and very tight and will keep going on. And you've taken several steps to reassure them since announcing this transition back in November. You had the town hall with Rusty Gregory, um, and I know you're always on the mountain every day and involved. Uh, you, you had a funny anecdote in your Windsward uh, holiday post about your granddaughter Viv and how she just, the first thing she asked for on a Christmas list was, I want the mountain back. It was a funny little anecdote, but I, I imagine a lot of folks were concerned on some level. How did you reassure her, and how do you reassure the community that, that Altera is going to take this thing in the right direction? Well, you never can totally reassure people because it gets proven by actions. But, you know, obviously they did a lot of due diligence on me. I did a lot of due diligence on them. As I said, I've, I've known the people well. I know what their strategy is. I know how they've maintained the mountains that they've bought already. You know, they haven't changed the, the characters. They haven't changed the brands. They're bringing, you know, some expertise in, which is very complimentary. So, you know, I'm personally confident, but, you know, people are always going to be skeptical until they see how it actually turns out. Now, for my granddaughter, you know, the important thing is I reassured her that her ski instructor is not going away and she can still <laughs> ski with her. And I told her maybe, you know, one day grow up, become an investment banker, and buy the mountain back. <laughs> there you go. Is she feeling better about that now that the season started and she's out there in the snow? She is. Okay. That, so when you signed Sugarbush up for the Icon Pass last year, did, did you consider that, was this in the back of your mind, was that kind of a trial period for, let's see what these Altara folks are all about. I know you've known them for a while, but to actually have that working relationship, was, was this a lead up to see if this was the right group to take this over ultimately? You know, that's a very good question. In, in some ways it was. It wasn't the primary motivator. The primary motiv motivator was we really saw that we were becoming vulnerable, not partnering with either the Epic or the Icon Pass, and also being surrounded by Powder Mountain and at the time Peaks as well as Boyne. So we thought that partnering, you know, strategically was important to do. But yes, in the back of the mind, I said, you know, that also gives us an opportunity to see how it's working, to get to know them better, and, you know, it did turn out that way. And what did you see from them through the course of that partnership, that one-year Icon Pass partnership that, that made you believe in them as capable stewards of this thing that you've worked so hard to build? Well, I, I think several things. Um, you know, first of all, I saw the power of the ICON Pass last year, so I saw what it brought to us. It brought to us a lot of new first-time skiers to Sugarbush, and, you know, that's always the struggle. We've got a very loyal base here, but you've got to constantly renew your base. You've got to bring new people in, and the ICON Pass did that. Uh, I was extremely impressed with the technology, so on day one, an ICON pass holder was able to go directly to our lift without having to go to the ticket office, which made it incredibly convenient. And they were able to do that by operating with different systems at different resorts. So, you know, that technology really gave me assurance that there was going to be a real value added to that. And then just seeing how they operated. They operated in a very transparent way, in a very open way. They were open to receptions. They were very inclusive. And so as you get to know the people, you get to know the cultures. And I felt that their culture was very compatible with the culture that we built here. So were they surprised when you said you wanted to sell them out, or, or was that conversation happening all along? Well, no, it was it was kind of a, an iterative conversation, and you know what I basically said to them is I'm really not in the in the market to sell. You know I don't have to sell. We had a record year, and so it really was a conversation. And then it was me taking a look and seeing a few trends that you know I felt were important to to recognize. 
And, you know, the most important thing a business owner can do or a CEO can do is to make sure that you're keeping your organization sustainable for the long term. And that is, you know, that's paramount in, in the decision. And also, you know, if you're selling, selling to the right person. So the trends I saw, Stuart, one was, you know, the power of these multi-resort passes. And, you know, we got a first-hand look at how it benefited us last year. But when um, Vail bought Peaks, you know, that was a bit of a wake-up call. I would say that was the catalyst to making me think perhaps this was the time I needed to really sell to a, a, a different organization. And, you know, they now have 37 resorts around the country. If you look here in Vermont, they own Stowe, they own Chemo, they own, you know, Mount Snow, they own Attachash, they own Wildcat, they own Crotchet, they own Sunapee. That's a very powerful force. You know, Boyne owns uh, Sunday River, Sugarloaf, Loon. You know, you've got Powder Corporation owning Killington. So we were really one of the very last independent large ski areas in the Northeast. And to me, that made us vulnerable. You know, the second trend I looked at is the impact of climate change. And while I don't think skiing has gone away in our lifetime, you know, we have to really anticipate that there are changes in the climate. We have to anticipate the volatility is happening. And when I took a look at the capital expenditures that I think we needed to make, I think we could have done it. But, you know, it would be better done with a stronger balance sheet. And then the third item, which, you know, unfortunately is kind of the reality of doing business in Vermont, it's expensive to do business here. There are costs which we absorb that, you know, other states don't. And being part of a big organization allows us to sort of mitigate those issues by saving in other areas. For example, if I buy a groomer, I pay rack rate. If I'm part of Altera, I'm probably going to buy it at a discount. So those were the three primary things that came, you know, to light that made me decide that this was the right time. And I would also add, you always want to sell when you're doing well, and you always want to sell when the right person is out there and interested in you. Well, it seems like the mountain's doing great and, and been booming for a while. Can you talk a little bit more about the cost of doing business in Vermont and, and what specifically you mean by that and, and what regulations or laws or costs or other things you have to deal with that maybe they might not have to deal with in, say, New Hampshire? Sure. I mean, let, let's take uh, sales tax for one. You know, we sell a season pass. We add on 6%. You know, there's no sales tax in New Hampshire. I don't believe there's one in Maine. So therefore, you know, our cost is higher for a, a ticket or a pass unless we absorb that 6%. You know, some of the equipment that are, are purchased, we pay 6% on a lot of our equipment where that's not paid elsewhere. A workers' comp, because of the nature of the state, which is, you know, very pro-employee, um, it makes it more difficult to be an insurer in Vermont. Therefore, we really only had one insurance company. You never want to be able to only have to deal with one insurance company. You know, it takes away your, your flexibility. And, you know, regulation, as much as, you know, I love this state, it is more challenging and more difficult to develop here. It just adds to the cost of development. So those are just, you know, some examples. Uh, you know, Vermont is also looking towards a paid family leave, a high minimum wage. And so you look at all those factors and you realize that there is a higher cost to do business. Now, I'm not complaining because Vermont has many, many wonderful things to it as well, which are advantages and are competitive advantages, but you roll in those costs and it is more challenging in the lower margin business. Act 250 is in the process of possibly being revised to make some of the challenges easier. Have you had any insight into that and, and if any of those changes would help? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's still a work in progress. The legislature talked about it last year. They went nowhere. You know, I think that one of the challenges of Act 250 is there a number of district commissions 
all of whom don't necessarily uh, rule on things the same way, so there can be an inconsistency. And as you know in business, uh, unpredictability is one of the biggest fears of, of the business. You want to know what's out there so you can plan and change. So I think you know that that is being looked at right now. Um, you know there may be changes to the criteria that make a permitting easier or quicker. You know sometimes it can take you 18 months, 24 months, and there's a cost to delay. So we don't know yet, but at least it's being discussed. And you don't want to take away the good things of 250 because that has really preserved, I think, the integrity and the environment of the state. But you do want to make it a little bit more feasible for people to get the right projects done. Right, find that balance. So you ended up partnering with Altera. I'm curious if anyone else approached you with an offer. Well, you know, I, I'm not going to say exactly what, what somebody did this time, but, you know, over the years I have been approached by different people that, you know, expressed an interest and the timing and, and the person wasn't right. So Altera this time around was the one that really had a serious interest in us. And did Vale ever come knocking on your door? I could never say that. <laughs> well, I had to ask. Uh, so I want to rewind a little bit here to 2001. So you spent 28 years at Merrill Lynch, and you resigned shortly after Stanley O'Neill came on as CEO. Um, you were born in New York City, spent your career there. Instead of trying to fire up another career in finance, you said, forget all that, bought Sugarbush. That's a big career change and a big lifestyle change. What told you that was the right thing to do? I'm not sure I knew it was the right thing at the time. You know, I, I left Merrill Lynch pretty abruptly. It kind of almost surprised me when I, I told him in a meeting that I was done and was going to retire because I just really did not respect his approach to business and his disrespect for the values that had made Merrill Lynch. So I kind of walked out the door with a game plan, without a game plan. And the first couple of years, I was investing in different projects, including Sugarbush. You know, initially, I, I and a friend, Joe Reamer, bought Sugarbush with the idea of fixing it up and, you know, selling it because uh, it was our home mountain and really making sure it didn't fail. But after a few years, I, I realized that, you know, I could be effective running it. It looked like a great second career. So I moved up here. I focused entirely on Sugarbush as my, my main investment and made it a second career. So it was a little bit of a serendipitous way of getting into a second career. The second career started off a little shaky, though. You assumed ownership of the mountain on September 10th, 2001. Huh. And we all know what happened the next day. And it's hard to describe what it was like to be in America in the months after that, if you weren't old enough to remember. But it was it was just a really weird time. And I know for you, it was probably very personal. The mayoral offices were very near ground zero, um, even though you had moved on at that point. Uh, how did you... With all those distractions and all those things going on, how did you focus on the challenge of running this mountain? Oh, another great question, Stuart. Well, first of all, I hadn't moved on. You know, my office was literally at Ground Zero and uh, the World Financial Center. So my office kind of overlooked the devastation. While I wasn't there that day, I was in Tokyo. And I came back a week later and went to my office and looked down on it. And, you know, it's a sight I'll never forget. It's a smell I'll never forget, the smell of death uh, that was all over that, that war zone there. So I didn't leave Merrill Lynch for, you know, a, I didn't resign for about a month, and I didn't leave mm -hmm. until January of the next year. So I was I was sort of in transition. I did have, Joe and I did hire two local people to really manage the resort, and so I would say I was much more focused on Merrill Lynch initially than on Triggerbush, and they were they were running it. But, you know, in addition to 9-11, to you know, the... The effects of that were very tough. We obviously went into a recession. There's obviously a big loss of consumer confidence. But the other things that happened, um, 
we had a 100-year drought up here. So we mm-hmm. actually could not withdraw from the Mad River to make snow at Christmas time. So we had lousy conditions. You know, people thought that we were cutting costs and not making snow because we were the new owners and didn't know what, uh, you know, we were doing. Uh, we start off with no customer database. American Skiing owned all the database. So we had to start from scratch in a lousy winter in a lousy economy with the after effects of 9-11. And I must say, by January of that next year, I kind of really wondered what the hell I had done. And it's easy to forget now, but you didn't have social media then. Uh, you didn't have as built out of as an Internet. It wasn't as easy for you to talk directly to people in the way that you can now. No, it wasn't. I mean, you talk about snowmaking. We had to you know, type things out on yellow pages and you know, basically t- tape them to the ticket windows and around the lodges to explain you know, what was actually going on. Right, and then maybe talk to the local paper and hope people read that, and, and that was the way it was done. So, um, so as you mentioned, you didn't move actually move up to warrant Sugarbush until 2004. Can you talk a little bit more about the reason for that move and what changed once you arrived? Yeah, um, I had, you know, first of all, Joe Reamer, my, my friend and my partner, died of pancreatic cancer before we mm-hmm. even opened in 2001. And Jeez. so his family really wasn't interested in having an investment, you know, an illiquid investment in a ski resort, so I, I purchased his interest out. So I essentially had, you know, close to 95% ownership, and my partners had, you know, some sweat equity. And, you know, they were doing some things, but, you know, the first few years were unprofitable. I had to put more money into it. You know, it was not looking very good. And that's the point in time I thought, you know, I better really come up and get immersed myself, you know, take over the day-to-day operating control of the business, Uh, One of my partners focused on the first phase of real estate development, but I really immersed myself into running the business. And, you know, the first thing you have to do in any business is establish a good mission, a good vision, uh, you know, establish a set of core values, you know, have a solid strategy, and then most importantly, build the right team around you that has the competency and, and has the same vision. And so that's what I set about in 2004, and it took a good, you know, two, three years for that to start to come together. And we really started to turn around and become profitable and uh, sustainable in about 2007, 2008. When you announced the sale to Altera, you characterized Sugarbush when you took over as having been deteriorating and unprofitable under ASC. Can you give us a fuller picture of what condition the mountain was in and what needed to be done to fix it up? I can. I mean, first of all, I have to give a lot of credit to Les Otten because when he first came in here, he, he did a lot of really good things. Um, and, you know, he got snowmaking at Lincoln Peak. That was something the prior owner had never been able to do. You know, he put in a number of high-speed quads, which changed the whole way the, the mountain flowed. He put in the Slybrook Express that connected Sugarbush and Mount Ellen. You know, the problem he had, which a lot of businesses run into, is he grew too fast and he grew with the wrong capital structure. So he acquired a whole bunch of resorts. He acquired them with high-yield junk debt. And while some of the resorts were doing well, you know, the capital structure was killing them. And when he tried to build the Grand Summit here, the community essentially rejected that. That was his way of funding all the capital improvements he made here, which was about $20 million. When that got rejected, he really kind of turned his back on Sugarbush. He focused on the canyons and elsewhere. You know, we had different management every year. We had terrible relationships with the community. Deferred maintenance was building up. And what Joe and I saw was a deteriorating resort that would either continue to deteriorate or maybe go out of business. And that mm-hmm. was really our motivation for stepping up and wanting to buy it and, and turn it back to good health. 
you know, in your book, uh, Catching Lightning in a Bottle, How Merrill Lynch Revolutionized the Financial World, you point to that company's vaunted principles yeah. as one of the reasons for its success and the yeah. abandonment of those principles as part of its eventual downfall during the financial crisis. I'm curious, when you got to Sugarbush, did you institute something like that? You just mentioned, you know, you had to have a plan. Were there guiding principles that you gave to your team and said, okay, this is what we're going to follow. This is the blueprint we're going to follow to bring this mountain back. Oh, I did. I mean, since Merrill Lynch wasn't using the principles, I took them. No. And so basically, I instituted the same, you know, principles here, starting with the, the guest interest comes first, you know, creating teamwork, you know, having respect for the individuals because our greatest assets are our people, you know, operating with integrity and making sure that you are a contributing member of the community. So those five principles, you know, I really borrowed, if you will, from Merrill Lynch. I added a couple of others. I added safety because safety is so important not only to our guests but to our employees. And then I added in what I called at the time fiscal responsibility because we weren't operating fiscally responsibly. I've subsequently changed that to sustainability which means financial sustainability as well as environmental sustainability. But, you know, we have those core values. That really is our guiding North Star. And then we also, you know, decided, you know, every, every company needs to have a why. Why are you in existence? Why are you in business? Or, you know, they say, what's your mission statement? And so we decided to come up with a, a phrase, which we believe in, and ours is to cultivate a spirit of lifelong adventure and camaraderie. And the adventure is the skiing, it's the golf, it's the activity, but the camaraderie is what builds a community. And I really believe that that's what skiing is all about. It's about adventure and it's about camaraderie. And it's lifelong because what you're trying to do is create a climate here, a community, where generations, you know, mature and pass along and generations keep, you know, instilling that, that lifeblood to the, to the community. It's amazing how many parallels you can find in what on the surface are two very different businesses. But when you got here to Sugarbush, what kind of learning curve was there for you as far as the operation side of it? You know, you're dealing with snowmaking, you're dealing with chairlifts, you're dealing with extreme conditions. And, and before, you've been in a very different role as this international head at, at Merrill Lynch, overseeing a much different portfolio. So what was that experience like of, of adjusting to running a resort on a mountain in variable conditions? Well, first of all, sir, you know that every skier is an expert on the ski business. <laughs> so we all knew exactly right. you know, what, what was, people should be doing. But in all seriousness, um, I didn't know very much about the operations, and I still don't know a lot about a lot of the operations. But that's not what my job is. You know, my job is to, to build a team, hire a team, you know, set the direction, delegate, you know, hold people accountable. It's not to fix a lift. It's not to make snow. You know, at Merrill Lynch, I wouldn't know how to run the operations department, the IT department. So a CEO really is in charge with that. But, you know, over time, you do learn enough to become smarter. You do learn enough to ask the right questions. You do, know, you do learn enough to make the right, you know, priority decisions. And that, that's a cumulative thing. But I'm very fortunate, and I think this is the most important thing any leader can do, is to build a very highly competent team that you have total trust and respect for. So as you go to hand off the mountain to new owners, do you think about what the previous owners did to make Sugarbush what it is today? And you go back to the Gad Murphy families at Sugarbush, the Elliott family at Mount Allen, um, through Roy Cohn, ARA, Clinell, and the American Skiing Company. Uh, I, I, you know, The most obvious example that comes to my mind is connecting Mount Allen and Lincoln Peak with the Slidebrook Express. But but what is that legacy, and, and how do you uh, help that live on at Sugarbush? Well, it, we do have a great legacy here. You know, we're in our 61st year, and, you know, each owner has added something, added something positive. 
you know, the Gads were, were the original founders here. They, they really built the initial community. You know, they, they created the, the whole atmosphere of Mascara Mountain, <clears throat> which was really unique in those days. You know, Roy Cohn after him and Cleanil after them and American Ski after them, you know, all improved the situation here. While some did it maybe better than others, they all made improvements that we've benefited from. And in our 18 years, I think we've made some significant improvements as well. So now, as we turn it over to Altera, you know, they have a great foundation. They have a roadmap that I think they believe in. And now it's up to them to continue to improve and make this place better each and every year without changing the essence, without changing the character. And, and that's, the, that's the challenge and the, the balance that you always want to have. You want to retain the culture, retain the foundation, retain the North Star, but not dwell on the past. Look forward and continue to innovate and get better. What is on your wish list, short and long term, for Sugarbush? Because honestly, as a skier, when I come there, the place is in great shape. I don't know what I would fix, so but I'm sure you do. Well, you know, again, they're, they're, we are in good shape, and I, I think that's the thing that made us very appealing to Altera. Is we are in good shape. There's not a lot of deferred maintenance. You know, I think they like the character that we built here at at Lincoln Peak. But you know, what do we need in the future? Well, we as good as our snowmaking system is here. Now we have to make it even better. We have to get ahead of the impact of climate change. We have to build more capacity to take advantage of shorter windows of opportunity. You know, our, our lodging, our, our, our food and beverage operations on the busiest days, they're crowded. So mm-hmm. I think we could use another Mid-Mountain Lodge at Lincoln Peak. I think we could do an expanded, you know, waltz over at Mount Ellen. I think also that in time we have an opportunity to actually create some additional terrain, not necessarily massive new trails, but there's some things we've had in our master plan, both at Mount Ellen, above the Inverness Pod, or in between Castle Rock and Gatehouse, because should really add to the experience here without, you know, detracting from what it is already today. So those are just some examples. I think growing the business, you know, we have a real opportunity midweek and summer to grow the business. While we have a really good hotel in the form of Claybrook, it's not a traditional hotel. It doesn't have the room structure. And that doesn't allow us to attract some of the midweek conferences we could midweek, winter, and summertime. We're a great wedding venue, but if we had a separate location, we could do more weddings, which we turn away today. Those are just some of the things that you know we would envision for the future. And that's a lot to do. And when you announced the acquisition, Altera asked you to stay on as president and COO for as long as you wish. Uh, and then in last week's Windsward, you said, I plan to continue as president and CEO of Sugarbush for a while until the right successor is ready to take the reins. Curious, first of all, if there is a successor that you're grooming, and second, if that successor would be your decision or Altera's or both. Uh, I have I have a couple of people that are certainly uh, very viable candidates. Uh, so my preference would be to have somebody come up from within. I think that's always the healthiest, you know, in an organization, or very often it's the healthiest. Uh, I think they are going to certainly look to my input, but you know, clear as the, the owner, they ultimately are going to make the decision. Getting back to, to the mountain improvements, you mentioned snowmaking, a lot of lodge stuff. Uh, you didn't mention anything about chairlifts. I'm wondering if there's any lifts that you're kind of eyeballing for uh, an upgrade or, or replacement anytime soon. Um, Heaven's Gate Triple, for example, dates to 1984. Seems to be in good shape, but are there any on the mountain that you're considering upgrades to in the future? You know, I'd say short term, meaning the next, you know, three to five years, probably not. And the reason for that is even though, you know, Heaven's Gate is an older lift, we've put in a new drive system there, new comm lines, you know, so it's an older lift with new controls. Same thing on Northridge, same thing on the Super Bravo. 
But at some point, you know, the hours on Super Brawl will get long, so, you know, that's probably a candidate, you know, for a replacement down the line. And if you do it, you might make it a lower profile lift so it's not as susceptible to the wind. You know, Heaven's Gate in time, you know, perhaps you could think of that as a, a quad instead of a triple, which, you know, might help some of the, um, the capacity on the busiest days. You know, maybe not a high-speed quad, though, for two reasons. One is you don't want to overpopulate the trails, which I think is one of the benefits of Sugarbush. And secondly, high-speed quads, while they move people fast, they're more complicated, they're actually more susceptible to weather events like icing and the wind. Um, so, you know, those are two lifts down the line, but in the short term, while we've added seven lifts under my ownership, we've also done a significant amount of work on most of the other lifts, so they are in good shape. And what about the Slidebrook Express? That's a lift that's turning 25 this year. It's actually the longest chairlift in the world. I'd imagine that's quite a complicated machine to keep constantly maintaining. Uh, any concerns about the long-term viability of that lift? Well, no. Actually, um, the, the problem with Slidebrook is we can only operate it when we have sufficient snow depth for the lift mechanics to get in there on the snowmobiles and check all 40 towers. Mm -hmm. So if you take a look at the operating hours of that lift, you know, it has maybe some of the fewest operating hours of any of our lifts. So mm -hmm. it has a long-term life to it. And you mentioned uh, terrain expansion earlier. Uh, the, as a condition for building that lift, I believe American Skiing Company uh, orchestrated a deal with the Forest Service that they would never develop Slidebrook Basin for skiing. Is that right? It is. Not just the Forest Service, but the state. There's only a very small sliver of Forest Service land in Slidebrook. Most of it is our own land but the permit conditions were such that it would be impossible to do any development in there. Mm. But skiers can go back there, just backcountry skiing. Correct. It's a very sensitive bear habitat area. It's a beech grove, and so that was really the main concern when he put the lift in, is to maintain the integrity for the, for the bear population. Have you ever considered a top-to-bottom lift, either at Lincoln Peak or Mount Ellen, and maybe along the old uh, gondola path on Lincoln Peak? Uh, no, and the problem with that is we... Um, we're very susceptible to wind up here, and so if you have a top-to-bottom lift and, you know, it goes on wind hold, you kind of are shut down. Where if we have, you know, let's say Heaven's Gate on wind hold, you can ride Bravo or Valley House and probably ski some of the best terrain on the mountain without even having to go to the top. Same is true with Mount Ellen. You know, if you ride Northridge, you don't necessarily have to go to, to the summit to have a great day experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, a lot of your northern Vermont neighbors have enclosed lifts. Stowe and Killington have uh, have gondolas. JP has a tram. Do you ever consider anything like that, or, or do chairlifts just work better at Sugarbush? You know, there there are clearly lots of pluses um, to a bubble quad. It's certainly warmer. You know, um, there's been some question about is it better with wind or worse with wind. You know, so there are a lot of advantages to it. Um, they're expensive, so I think it's not something you put in willy nilly and a you're looking to make different capital improvements, that would not be the highest on my priority list. So I want to shift and talk here about the actual mountain. Um, you have one of my favorite pods in the Northeast, which we were talking about earlier, which is Castle Rock. Uh, just opened for the first time today, which is January 28th. Uh, that terrain rarely sees a groomer, um, still serviced by a fixed-grip double chair. I feel like there's a tendency in the East to try and gold-plate everything and over-groom some of these mountains. And as a skier, I really appreciate finding pods like Castle Rock, and some of your other terrain that you leave relatively unmanaged. Um, and I actually read that when Les Auden tried to put a quad or proposed putting a quad in Castle Rock, the locals had a fit. Take me into your philosophy here on why you leave some of the mountain alone. Well, it's the same. I think one of the advantages we have here is, first of all, we have 4,000 4, acres that's skiable. We have some great wood skiing here. 
you know, both identified and unidentified, which are secret stashes. And I think that's our competitive advantage of having this variety, uh, varied terrain. <clears throat> so we have enough beginner and intermediate trails which we can groom. We can groom some of our expert trails, whether it's ripcord or steins or, um, you know, cliffs. But we do want to leave enough terrain natural for people to enjoy. And I think you find, on average, at Sugarbush and at some of the northern resorts, a higher quality skier that's looking for adventure. And they're, they get bored just, you know, skiing groomers. You know, some mountains groom everything. Uh, you get bored there if you're looking for a different type of adventure. So our philosophy is to really have a mix. And on any given, say, holiday day, we may be grooming up to 60 of our 111 trails, but we're leaving 55 or, you know, 51 trails ungroomed. Yeah, and it makes the mountain much more interesting. Hey, do you think there's any influence from being right next door to Mad River Glen and they have their whole ski-it-if-you-can mentality and they do groom, but they leave so much ungroomed? Do you think that there is a, a mutual influence of being neighbors, of kind of having, uh, try to have similar terrain? No, I don't, I don't think it's that necessarily. You know, we don't view each other as competitors. We view each other as very complementary. You know, some of the terrain they have there, they just can't groom. You know, it's like... You know, mm -hmm. we could groom, we can't groom Rumble, for example. We could groom Middle Earth maybe once a year if there's sufficient snow depth, but you can't do it constantly. So, you know, Mad River's trail system really doesn't make it conducive to a lot of grooming. They don't have snowmaking on it, so it's more challenging. You know, we could, you know, groom more trails here if we wanted to, but again, as I said, we really want to create the, the varied terrain and the the opportunity for all types of skiers to enjoy it. We're talking about Castle Rock, you finally got it spinning today. Can you talk a little bit about why it took so long to get that lift going? Yeah, there just wasn't. You know, we've had a, we've had a, a really funky winter. We've had five roller coaster events. You know, we mm -hmm. have January thaws, we have thaws, freezes, but to have five up to this point in the year is really unusual. We've had over 90 inches of snow, but unfortunately, we've had thaws. And we have rain events that have melted that snow. And that's what happened at Castle Rock. The, the top, we've opened to hiking, and the top to the middle was skiing actually very well. But the bottom where the lift runs and the run to the lift really didn't have the surface to operate it successfully. And it's only after this last series of snowfalls that we have sufficient snow there to run the lift from the bottom. What I love, though, is that even when it's not spinning, not only do you allow people to hike it, but you encourage them to do so. Why is it important to you to open up the mountain in that way? Well, again, it's part of the adventure. You know, it's to many people, it's a rite of passage to hike across, you know, and ski Castle Rock. It's some, it's an adventure that that people really get thrilled with. And because it's a hike like that, you're not getting heavy traffic. So even though we're a little bit light and thin, there are just enough skiers going over there to really have a pleasurable experience. And from the pictures I was seeing that you were posting online, the snow looked really great up there. So glad you finally got that spinning. Can't wait to get up there and uh, ski it myself. Um, back to terrain for a moment. You've added several glades over the years, and you just referenced the secret glades that you have all over the mountain. Any chance of cutting more and adding more to the trail map over the coming years? Uh, that would be difficult to do. And, and first of all, we don't really call them glades because you know, people's vision of a glade is kind of like wide open space with some trees. Mm -hmm. You know, we call these wooded areas. And the reason we do is we were the first in the East to actually come up with what we uh, referred to as a forest management plan with the Forest Service. So they permitted us to thin, you know, certain forest areas to make it skiable, accessible. But they're not wide open glades. Mm. So we have 28 of those identified as Sugarbush, many of them on Forest Service land, but others on our own land. 
And over time, we may recycle those, so we may let the vegetation grow back in on one area and move to another area, but it's a forest management plan that's allowed for this wooded scheme. And again, I think it's something unique in the east. Now, Mad River, they operate on their own land, so they do a lot of thinning and cleaning, but it's very similar there. They're not wide open glades. It's more wood scheme, which is differentiated, I think, both Sugarbush and Mad River. Stowe has some great wood scheme, too. Mm-hmm. And how do you maintain those? Do you have volunteer events? Do you have a team that goes through and thins them out regularly? Now, we actually have our own trail crew in the summer that does that. And again, it's uh, we're not cutting down new stuff. We're just pruning. We're cutting and you know taking up dead stuff, you know, et cetera, with the permission of the Forest Service when it's on their land. And are these folks who ski the mountain, who know the mountain well, who know where these wooded areas would be maximized on skis? Yeah, and we have we have 28 areas that are actually identified. So, you know, we don't patrol them. It's skiing at your own risk. But we do identify a good entrance to these wooded areas, and you can see that on the trail map. And then we have an open wood policy, so people can ski anywhere, you know, at their own risk. Um, and there are many areas that are just naturally skiable without any thinning. So you but mentioned we're very your... careful about making sure people don't cut inappropriately. Mm-hmm. In the Forest Service, you know, there's a fine of up to six months in prison if you cut, you know, anything on U.S. Forest Service land. So it sounds like you have a pretty good uh, relationship with them, though, where it runs on a schedule and, and they understand where you're going to cut and when. Oh, absolutely. And, and we have a special use permit. And, you know, each year we, we develop a winter plan and we develop a summer plan. And, you know, we do have a very good relationship with the Forest Service. And, you know, we're very mindful that it is our land. We're just the, we're just the leaseholder. You know, we're just leasing it from them for 40 years, paying them a fee mm-hmm. for it. But they are the owner of the land. And they own all of the land on both mountains, or do you own some of it? It's about half and half. Uh, they mm. own about 2,000 acres, and we own about 2,000 acres. So on the Lincoln Peak side, it's almost all the land above the base area. Mm-hmm. Um, with the exception of a sliver right in the middle of Slybrook, we own most of that land, but it's you know restricted, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And then Mount Ellen, we own most of the land from the base area up to the very summit. Mm-hmm. And the summit, if you can think of, from Northridge, all the way up FIS to the very top, that's U.S. Forest Service land, hmm. as and, is the ridge line. And does the fact that you have so much Forest Service land, does that have anything to do with your opening and closing dates, or is that not part of your lease? No, it's not. We can open and close anytime we want. You, you've made it to May several years in a row. You, you ever think about giving Killington a run for last to close? Nope. It's, you know, I think one can do that. You know, there are only a certain amount of skiers. You don't make any money. You know, we stay long enough to satisfy our pass holders um, and let me have the fun as well. But, you know, going beyond May is just, you're just printing money and throwing it out the window. Yeah, it's it's a nice little marker, though, to make it to May. It's, you know, not many mountains can do that. So it always looks good to do it. And, and uh, I think you're trying to do it again this year. Yeah, and, and the other thing, too, is we really need the month of May to, you know, do summer maintenance on our Bravo lift so that when we start our summer activities, that's ready to go for the entire summer. Right. All right. Well, I want to shift gears here and talk about passes. Uh, you've already indicated that the full Icon Pass would become Sugarbush's season pass next year. Um, do you have a sense yet of how Altera will treat Sugarbush on the Icon Base Pass? In, in most instances, that is also a season pass if you look at Squaw Valley, Mammoth Solitude, uh, but with blackouts. In some cases, like with Crystal, it's a, it's a full season pass. Um, however, in the case of Steamboat and Stratton, the Icon Base Pass is only good for five days, uh, and those are blacked out, whereas you need the full Icon Pass to to have the season pass. Do you have any sense of which model Sugarbush will follow? 
You know, I think we're just in those discussions now. We, we couldn't, for antitrust reasons, you know, talk about them before we closed. So we're just now getting into those discussions, and so I, I really don't know at this point in time what we'll do, but I think we will come up with what the right answer is for Sugarbush. And I know ICON is very, or Altera is very interested in making sure that happens too. You know, for your season pass holders, it seems like this is a pretty good deal. It, the price is pretty much on par with what they were paying before, or maybe a little less. And they also pick up seven days at Killington for that early late season, seven days at Loon, Sunday River Sugarbush. They now get a season passage from Blount and Stratton and all the access out west. And that all sounds great to me, but I'm not a Sugarbush season pass holder. How has the response been from that season pass holder community? Oh, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, if our pass holders to all mountain become, you know, icon next year, they're going to be thrilled. You know, the only concern people have is are we going to become overpopulated? You know, and there have been obviously some resorts that have been in the press recently where, you know, they've run out of parking, they haven't been able to get to the mountain. There have been complaints mm-hmm. about, you know, icon pass holders, you know, kind of ruining the experience. So I think that's what people, you know, are more concerned about in the future, whether that materializes or not. You know, we didn't see it last year as a partner. We saw just enough incremental people that it was comfortable. And the thing that we have here is, you know, we have 4,000 skiable acres. You know, when people are skiing in the woods, it, they're not coming down as fast. They're not in the lift lines as often. We have Slidebrook that moves people over to Mount Ellen. Our vertical uproof with our 16 lifts is about 24,500 people per hour, which is one of the most uh, impressive vertical uplifts in the east. You know, some have more, but they have a lot more skier visits. So if you kind of, you know, divide your your vertical into your skier visits, ours has to be one of the best in the Northeast. And that moves people around. But that 4,000 acres, you know, really scatters people so you don't get the congestion. We have four ways of getting in here, not just one lane. We have adequate parking, so we haven't run out of parking. So I am not concerned personally about overpopulating this mountain. Well, you had a good test of it on Martin Luther King weekend. You had your busiest day ever by yep. 7% from what I saw. Uh, and you seemed happy with the way that you managed that. Did, did you learn anything from that day that will help you prepare for a possible greater influx of skiers in the future? You know, I would say, um, remarkably, um, I didn't see many things that went wrong that day. So we ran out of parking at Mount Ellen first, which is a bit unusual. Usually mm-hmm. it's the other way, and then we fill Mount Ellen. So we ran out there, but then we were able to transport people you know, over to Lincoln Peak, steer them here. We had, I would say we had a good 100 parking spaces left, you know, with a mm-hmm. record day, so that was satisfying. You know, certainly the lift lines were longer than, you know, maybe the traditional Sugarbush skier likes, but they, when I timed them at the base area, they were 10 minutes, maybe 15 at the longest, which for a holiday in the east really is not bad at all. No, and I'm, I'm sure if you can slip into the singles line, it's even faster. Absolutely. If, yeah, if you know where you're way around the mountain, you know how to avoid that. You know, certainly the cafeterias were busy, but because it was a pleasant day with our new courtyard, which we added, people were outside. They were sitting around the fireplace. They were using the pizza bar. They were, they were on the back patio. So it was very different than if it had been a cold, miserable day and everybody was inside all the time. Well, it sounds like you handled it great, and, and I didn't hear a lot of complaints coming out about it, so uh, congratulations on that. Um, back to passes for a moment. Any insight on, as to whether Sugarbush will continue to be part of Mountain Collective? You know, I, I think for next year the answer is yes. We've already, you know, uh, Altera's already committed to have the mountains that are in Mountain Collective continue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't think you can predict long term, but certainly for next year it's continuing as is. Uh, personally, it, it, I hope we do because it's mm-hmm. been a good advantage here. 
our pass holders like it because they've been able to ski at the Mountain Collective Mountains at 50% off. If they're Icon pass holders, that's going to become you know, less important, but if we have our own local products, premium products, they'll see, see that as an advantage as well. And you also have a variety of other passes, midweek pass to Mount Allen only, a cheaper full pass for people in their 20s and 30s, midweek boomer pass for people 65 to 89, college passes, a corporate chamber pass. Uh, have you had discussions around whether these passes would continue? Now again, you know, we're just in those discussions, so, you know, I think we believe that some of them should. So, you know, that's going to be discussed and decided before the, uh, the spring pass campaign begins. I want to talk a little bit more about your relationship with Mad River Glen. I don't think most people appreciate how close it is to you. The distance from Mount Allen to Mad River Glen is the same as the distance from Mount Allen to Lincoln Peak. So theoretically, you could put another slide brook up there and connect it to you. Uh, the mountains are very different, as you've said, uh, but you've worked very closely together for a very long time. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Mad River Glen and the importance of that to the local community? It is, and you know the relationship hasn't always been good. Under ASC, there's quite a bit of tension, and, you know, they were viewed as competitors. You know, we took a very different view, and maybe it was because I actually learned to ski at Mad River. That's where I skied the first time. Mm. But it's wow. a different culture. It's a different ownership structure. It's a co-op. They have something that is unique, and it's precious. And I think the fact that both of us exist are a real benefit to the, the Mad River Valley community. Um, you know, our pricing is different because it has to be. We've got different infrastructure and, and different cost dynamics, but we worked on, you know, creating a couple of passes that have worked very well. We have a, a double major college pass um, that has really been very, very attractive, especially in the Burlington market. For our 420s pass, we had an ad mad for an extra premium. You know, people could ski both at Sugarbush and Mad River, and mm -hmm. that's worked very well. You know, there's only certain amounts that we can do together because they don't want to overpopulate their mountain. They've got a single chair or double, so they can't create too much volume to take away from the experience. But again, you know, we, we cooperate in any way we can. We, we start off with a big kicker party, you know, every fall where we jointly have a, a, a party to celebrate the upcoming winter. And we try to do things as, as cooperative as we can in that way. And it's great for the ballot. And I'm finding that more and more people actually ski at both mountains now. You have the mm -hmm. diehard Mad River who'll never come here and diehard Sherbush will never go there. <laughs> Hey, you know, that's that is less so than it used to be. And, you know, people have a Mad River Pass and a Sugarbush Pass, a Mad River Pass and a Quad Pack. Uh they ski here when Mad River is closed and then ski there when Mad River is open. So there's a lot of flow between the mountains. One thing that you both did that I don't think most mountains would do. So when Mad River Glen replaced their single chair a few years ago. They just built it to the exact same specs. And you did the same thing with the Castle Rock Double. Uh, was that done before you came over or before you bought the mountain or after? No, uh, we did that. And, and, it was and, shortly after we bought the mountain was the first lift that we, we, we changed. You know, the old double had been condemned. And as you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, you know, I think Les Otten had some plans to, you know, put a high-speed quad up there. And that's when I think they, they coined the phrase... Uh, less hot and more snow. <laughs> you know, for a long time, I knew that that would have been absolutely the wrong thing. It just would have ruined the experience of, of Castle Rock. And so just like the single chair, you know, there's a bit of an ethos of standing in line for 45 minutes to experience really good skiing. And mm -hmm. that's what we have at Castle Rock, and that's what Mad River has on their single chair. Well, it's so cool at Castle Rock because the, the lift looks 
it looks like a 1950s lift, but it was built in 2002. So it preserved that old flavor of the Medivar Valley right in the heart of a modern ski resort, which is a really cool thing to experience. Yeah, no, and it's, as you know, it's a very, very special place. It's kind of the signature area of Sugarbush. So as I mentioned in your intro, you are also the chair of the National Ski Areas Association. So I'd like to talk about that for a moment. Every year, the National Ski Areas Association, they put out their list of operating ski areas, uh, and there are hundreds that are shuttered across the country. But that number seems to have leveled off over the last 15 years. So there were 476 operating areas last season, according to those stats, and that's just too shy of the number we had in 2005. Do you think we've reached an era in which the ski areas that have survived are the ones who invested in the snowmaking and the other infrastructure, and that can help them weather those bad snow years. And do you think the, the, the survival of the fittest has kind of come true, and, and we have a, a pretty good idea of who's going to make it? That's a very good question. You know, I think for the most part, yes. Um, you know, certainly climate change is is that unknown variable. It's happening. It, it's occurring. You know, I think it's going to impact some earlier than others. So, you know, where we are in northern Vermont at higher elevation, you know, northern parts of Vermont, you know, we do get colder up here. We do get more snow. But if you're down in Pennsylvania, you're down in, um, you know, southern New York, if you're in southern New Hampshire, you know, those areas are more vulnerable. But a lot of them have invested very significantly in snowmaking, and they've had the water access, they have the low energy efficiency, and so they have been able to adapt and hopefully, you know, they're con- going to continue to see the temperatures that allow for snowmaking. If that's the case, then, yeah, certainly they'll be sustainable. My guess is that there are going to be more vulnerable resorts around the country, you know, who are in more vulnerable areas um, with the, the advent of climate change. And how much of a priority is are these small ski areas, these more vulnerable ski areas for the NSAA? Are they uh, proactively going out with best practices from the mountains who have snowmaking mastered, or, or are they providing loans or other, other financial assistance? How, how much are they focused on this? They're clearly focused on it, but, you know, NSA is a trade organization. It, it, it can't finance companies. It can't, you know, lend. You know, it can certainly help with bid, uh, best practices. It can, you know, encourage people to really you know, learn as much about running, you know, a, a resort efficiently. But there's only so much a trade organization can do. You know, I do know that the NSA is focused on a couple of key things. You know, one is growth in the business. And the ski industry was developed primarily by the baby boom generation, you know, people like me. You know, we're old white people that eventually are, you know, going to disappear. And so the ski industry has to do a much better job of, you know, identifying who is the next generation. And it's not just younger people but it's also the different demographic. It's the people of color. It's the Chinese-American. It's the Hispanics. And so we have to learn, you know, how do we speak to them? How do we encourage them to learn about skiing? And how do we motivate them to get into skiing and then stay into skiing? Um, You know, the NSA is very focused on safety. It's very focused on lift safety. It's very focused on making sure, you know, even the smaller operators, you know, are focused on doing the right thing so, you know, accidents don't occur because of, the lack of diligence or the lack of funding. You know, getting to that diversity issue for a moment, as I'm sure you're aware, they recently opened North America's first indoor ski area in New Jersey, and that's run by Joe Hessian, who also runs Mountain Creek. And uh, Jason Blevins did a feature article on that facility recently, and Hessian was talking about the diversity that you see at that facility. And, and I'm sitting in my office in Midtown Manhattan right now. I can see it across the river. It is right in the heart of this metro region of 20 million people. 
Uh, do you think that that being where it is and as close to that diverse population it is could be a model for how we could get a more diverse group of people into skiing? Absolutely. I, I'm really excited about what he's doing down there. You know, I think he's estimated that they might have as many as 650,000 skier visits, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of which 400,000 may be first-timers. You know, people can rent clothes, rent helmets, rent skis very affordably. They're skiing in a, a climate that's very appealing, 28 degrees, no wind. Mm-hmm. So if you have a first-time experience like that, you know, your odds of coming back a second, a third, and a fourth time are, are highly increased over having your first day, you know, on a 50-mile-an-hour wind-cold day, you know, where conditions are awful. So having something like that, I think, is absolutely great for the industry and if that's successful, maybe we'll see that in other areas of the country as well. Yeah, they said that they're doing 2,000 skiers a day, and if you take that out year-round, I mean, the potential is phenomenal, and not only at that facility, but to replicate it in Miami or Los Angeles or Phoenix or maybe some of these places where it's not so easy to get to snow and spark that interest in people. Absolutely. You know, these indoor arenas are not new. They, they exist in Europe. Uh, one existed in Tokyo going back, you know, a couple of decades. It failed. There's one in Dubai. Uh, so these are clearly, you know, things that I think could make a lot of sense for the future. Have you ever skied in one? I have not. Yeah, neither have I. I'm waiting till winter is over, uh, but around June or July, I think it's going to start looking pretty tempting. Oh, I, I think so. I'd love to go down there and try it. Yeah, just to see what they're doing and and in uh, the whole experience. And apparently, it's pretty streamlined because you know one of the one of the hardest things about taking someone skiing for the first time is just the logistics of it. You know, the rentals, the the cost of it. So so they have a whole system over there. Um, but Very getting back, point. To, that's what we all have to get better at is making that yeah. first time experience a lot smoother and a lot less full of angst. And you know, we've done that with our first time to lifetime program. We've done that you know, repositioning our rental shop here. And and that is really a key component to that first-time skier or rider having a great experience and wanting to come back. Yeah, that, that seems to be another advantage to Icon Pass. I know that's that's made for more uh, frequent skiers, but I'll tell you, I was able to buy my daughter's Icon Pass. She's 11 years old for $159. So for $159, she has five days at Sugarbush, five days at Killington, five days at Stratton. It's really amazing how that has made it more possible for us to ski as a family. So, you know, taking that up the next level beyond the beginner, you know, when you are ready to go a lot more, how do you do that? The Icon Pass really enables it. So that's a good coalition to be a part of. Absolutely. As you know, you know, if you ski once and you don't ski it for a year, you're starting all over again. If you ski, you know, several times a year, you know, you really are going to get very adept. And then you're going to love it, and then you're going to keep on doing it. Mm-hmm. So back to participation for a moment uh, with the NSSA statistics, um, NSAA. Uh, we saw a spike last year, fourth highest number of skier visits recorded in the past 40 years. We had a huge snow year pretty much everywhere last year. Uh, it was the first year of the Icon Pass. Is that the full story, or may we be seeing other things that are driving a renaissance in participation? That is a good question, and I, I don't think that we know yet. Uh, we don't really know if it's a trend. You know, last year I think you had the convergence of some really good things. You know, one, you had the Epic Pass, which has been around for quite a while now. You had the introduction of the Icon Pass. Um, but you also had a phenomenal skier. You had a year where there were good skiing conditions almost everywhere. So it was a convergence of those three things that I think created last year's results. But there is some evidence that some of the first-time initiatives that everybody is focusing on is making a difference. 
So it did look like there was a growth not just in skier visit days, but actually in the number of people actually skiing. And that's what we were probably more concerned about as we saw a decline over the last decade or so. And have you been able to put together a full story for Sugarbush? Because you said you had your best year ever last year attendance-wise. Do you know what drove that? Was it all those same factors? Because it, we had a decent snow year in the Northeast last year, but it wasn't the best. No, it was, you know, I'd say it was really cumulative. It wasn't necessarily what we did last year, but I think it was the cumulative impact of what we've been doing for the last decade. So it was some of the innovative products that we've had, the 420s, you mentioned the Boomer, the College Pass. It clearly was the addition of the partnership with Icon. It certainly was, you know, a decent snow year. We had only average snowfall, but we started off with a remarkably good November, and it kind of set the tone for the year. And then we extended, so we ended up with a 162-day season. Yeah, it was up there in mid-April and still skiing Castle Rock, so it was, it was, it looked pretty good. Uh, I didn't make it up in May, so I don't know what it looked like then, but I, the reports I heard were promising. So, when before I let you go, uh, you you often say your goal is to ski 100 days per season. You hit 151 last year. Where are you at this year? Uh, as of today, 60. 60. Okay. Well, I, I think you're probably ahead of most of us. Um, last year, you also wrote about a trip you took out west. Uh, any trips planned like that this year? Yeah, I do. You know, I'll try to get out once or twice. Uh, my son was really nice. He gave me a ski trip for my birthday. He said I've taken him on uh, three trips for his birthday, so he's reciprocating this year. And this year, he's going to take me out to Big Sky. And then Ooh. hopefully I'll get to ski maybe in Colorado or Utah as well. Nice. Have you been to Big Sky before? I have. I was there last year. A phenomenal place. Yeah, really remarkable stuff out there, but you're doing a great job at Sugarbush, Wynn. Uh, keep it up. We're really excited about the moving to Altera and seeing what you guys got planned for it. Great. I hope to see you up here soon, Stuart. I'll be there. And I will be, Wynn. That's Wynn Smith, President and Chief Operating Officer of Sugarbush. Sugarbush Skiers, how are you feeling about the sale to Altera after hearing that interview? I love Sugarbush, I get up there as much as I can, but it's far for me, and I don't know it like some of you do. From my point of view, Wynn's commitment to that mountain is unquestioned. The amount of time, love, and capital he's invested in it speak to that. But that community he talks about and has helped build, that's real. You feel that the second you step out of your car in the parking lot. That place is different, and a lot of that has to do with Wynn and what he's done there over the past 20 years. I'm sure you have thoughts on that. I'd love to hear them. The best way to get a hold of me is by subscribing to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. Do that at skiing.substack.com, then right back to the emails. I get those directly, and I answer them all. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and a rating on iTunes. Better yet, tell your friends. Spread the word. Go on social media. Speaking of social media, you can follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. Next up, we had a little lull on the podcast there, but I've got something booked each of the next three weeks after this one. I don't want to give specifics yet because these things can always get moved around, but I will tell you that if all goes as planned, you'll be hearing from the leaders of some of the biggest mountains in the Northeast before the season is done. We're going to mix in some more indies as well, probably some more website founders, probably some more journalists, and as always, I welcome your ideas about who you would like to hear from on the storm. Thank you so much for your time. Hope you have an awesome week of skiing, even if it's just at your local bump. Get out there. This is the heart of winter. Let's enjoy it. I know I will. I'm Stuart Winchester. I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.